We just saw the spectacular images from the James Webb Space Telescope. Let's talk to an expert and find out all the other things that it can do. Everything from here in the solar system all the way out as far back as you can possibly go in time to tell the story of the universe. How did it go from the Big Bang to people? Hi, I'm Jim Green, and this is Gravity Assist, NASA's interplanetary talk show. We're going to explore the inside workings of NASA and meet fascinating people who make space missions happen. I'm here with Dr. John Mather, and he is the senior project scientist for the James Webb Space Telescope, which of course just released its first spectacular images earlier this month. John is based at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. Welcome, John, to Gravity Assist. Thank you, Jim. It's really an honor to have you here, and I know you've had a long career at NASA, much like I have, and experienced so many fantastic things. And so I'd like to talk about a couple of them, one of which, of course, is COBE. Uh, this was uh, one of your first major missions, and, and of course, uh, in a wonderful way that led to your Nobel Prize. So can you give me a little background about COBE? Sure. And Well, COBE was the Cosmic Background Explorer satellite, and it was proposed back in 1974 to measure the Big Bang. So what's it mean to measure the Big Bang? It means measure the cosmic microwave background radiation, which fills the entire universe now, uh, and is evidence of the conditions at the very earliest moments, whatever they were. So task number one, see is it the right color? Uh, does it, is it colorless in the sense of uh, matching up a theoretical curve called a black body spectrum? And it, and it is. Uh, number two, uh, is it the same in every direction? And the answer is almost, but not quite. And that's really important because uh, we interpret the hot and cold spots that we saw on the map to say those come from the Big Bang itself, whatever the Big Bang really was, uh, and they made the universe not exactly smooth and not exactly uniform, and because of that, we are here. So when we showed the map to the, to the world, uh, Stephen Hawking said, well, that's the most important scientific discovery of this century, if not of all time. <laughs> oh, okay, Stephen, why is that so important? Well, number one, uh, we think that gravity acting on those primordial spots was able to turn around the expanding universe in places and uh, cause the formation of galaxies and stars and eventually leading to planets and people. So we're here because of that. Uh, number two, most of those spots are coming from something astronomers had recognized, but nobody can see. It's called cosmic dark matter. And so, okay, so we now are able to measure the cosmic dark matter by its effects on that map. And uh, number three, uh, the, the pattern's affected somewhat by the cosmic dark energy, which also astronomers can detect but cannot see. Uh, so uh, that tells us the expansion history of the universe. Uh, that's pretty important to our story. And finally, if we ever could figure out what made the spots, we would be thrilled because it would tell us something about quantum gravity, which is one of the biggest open questions of physics today. Did Kobe prove the Big Bang happened, or were there some sort of indications prior to that? Nothing can actually prove the Big Bang. We can always disprove something. So there was one major alternative theory to the what we call the Big Bang, the expanding universe, and it was called the steady state theory. Uh, and it had some very strange and interesting predictions, but it was definitely not 
in agreement with observations after we got them with the COBE satellite. So um, the Big Bang or the expanding universe, as I call it, this is the remaining theory. Um, what's interesting is, well, what was it like in the very earliest moments? So we can still argue a lot about what happened when the temperature was incredibly high and the density was incredibly high. But there was something extreme in those first sub-microseconds, and that's what I call the Big Bang. Well, what is happening in the early part of the universe that James Webb is going to be able to tease out? You know, it, it looks in the infrared and also looks back in time. Well, uh, Webb Telescope uh, does look back in time by looking at things that are far away. Uh, light takes a long time to get here from there. So we can look back on not quite all the way towards the beginning, but if nature gave us an object to look at, then we should be able to see it uh, as soon as 50 or 100 million years after the expansion started up. Uh, so uh, those primordial objects are purely predicted at the moment. Nobody's ever seen them. Uh, but we built a, the Webb telescope so that we could if they are there. By the way, when we're talking about the size of the universe, um, the universe as a whole is probably infinite. So it doesn't really have a size. The part that we can see is... Uh, 13.7 or 13.8 billion light years in dimensions at the moment, um, or it was when the light was sent to us. So that's a little tricky bit too, because of course everything's been moving and changing ever since the light came. Um, but at any rate, our job with the Webb telescope is looking as far back towards that moment to, into what we call the cosmic dark ages to see the first luminous objects that grew out of that primordial material. So they could have been stars, they could have been galaxies that came together uh, before the stars grew. They could have been black holes. There are even are stories about how black holes could grow out of that primordial material. Wow. It's even logically possible that there are some left from the Big Bang itself. <laughs> Although nobody has figured that one out. We've never seen any real signs of them, but what about that? So that's now sort of number one cosmological objective is to see back as far as possible in time. It really sounds to me like you, as a cosmologist, are following a series of missions that then build on one another. How did you personally go from working on COBE to then getting involved in the James Webb Space Telescope? Well, it was a, not my plan, actually. Um, somebody else was already working on this new telescope concept, and COBE uh, was more or less done, and I think, what am I going to do next that's as good as that? And I got a phone message from NASA headquarters, from Ed Weiler, and we're going to start a study of this new telescope. Do you want to work on it? And if we do, then I need a proposal from you tomorrow. <laughs> so he, he knew that he had something to push and that it was time to start. So, of course, I called up the people he told me to talk to, and we sent in the proposal, and we got rolling. So I had no idea how hard this mission would be or how long it would take, but I just could tell this was the most important thing I could possibly be working on um, as a follow-up to the Kobe satellite. What was the original questions that you were scientifically trying to answer with this new telescope that you were conceptually uh, working on? Well, right away we knew there were many questions it could answer because it would be doing something no one ever could ever possibly do in any other way. Uh, we knew we needed an infrared telescope. So why infrared? Well, number one, it's now technically possible and it's never been possible before because we have the, in, the capability of cooling things down. We have the capability of launching a telescope into space that would be larger than ever we tried before. Um, and um, 
And the Hubble can't do it because the Hubble emits infrared light. The ground telescopes can't do it because they emit infrared and the sky is kind of dark or bright or opaque one way or the other. So you can't do it from here. So this is all going to be a big mystery until we can get telescopes into space to do this work. So what are you going to be able to do? Not only look back and farther in time, but also look inside dust clouds where stars are being born today. Um, uh, we didn't even know yet there would be so many planets at the time. Uh, in 1995, just we were just discovering the very, very first planets around other stars. So now we know most stars have planets, and we did make a few adjustments to the mission concept so we could study them too. Uh, so anyway, basically everything from here in the solar system all the way out as far back as you can possibly go in time to tell the story of the universe. How did it go from the Big Bang to people? It's going to be an amazing story as we put in more of the puzzle pieces and figure out what's happening. Well, did, did uh, Webb originally have these big mirrors that were segmented, or was it, you know, what, what was the original thought? How do you compare those early concepts with what we have today? Early concepts actually resemble the one we have today very closely. Really? Um, wow. There were different ways you can fold up a segmented telescope, um, but we knew right away we had to have a big sunshade because the telescope has to be cold. Uh, we knew we couldn't keep the telescope near Earth. Uh, because the Earth is always warm and it's always getting in the way. Um, and so um, you couldn't keep the telescope cool near Earth. Okay, push it far away. Where's the next place to go? It's called the Lagrange Point too. It's a million miles out there, but it's a great place if you can get there. On the other hand, if you can get there means use a rocket you can get. And that means uh, the telescope is going to be pretty different. It's going to be ultralight. Uh, the mass of the telescope is half of what the Hubble was is. Wow. So it's a huge challenge. But the, the basic sketch that we drew is pretty similar to what we actually flew. So John, as you're going along helping put this telescope together, when did it happen that you thought, hey, we've turned the corner and this is going to work? Did that ever occur? Um, I think I always knew this was going to work. Um, the, and the reason for that is uh, we have a brilliant engineering system for keeping track yes. of everything that might go wrong. And if anybody has a worry about it, they speak up and we talk about it and make sure we fix whatever that was. And so from the beginning to the end, we've had project managers and support from NASA headquarters that said, yeah, that's the right thing to do. We're not cutting corners on this. We're going to do it right. So uh, on the other hand, uh, I was just sitting there quite calmly at launch and it was just happy to watch it go up. Now, when we finally got to the image release, oh my gosh, all the things that could go wrong, suddenly they come flooding into my mind. And uh, <laughs> this is like, I've been walking along the edge of a cliff for 25 years and I didn't fall off. I mean, we were all waiting in bated breaths for July 12th to come around. And, and I have to tell you, I was just blown away. Uh, and, uh, and I'm sure you felt that, too. So what were some of your impressions when you first saw the, this data coming in? Well, my goodness, uh, I was like almost everybody else. I had not seen them until they were polished. And so we went from more than two decades of, is it really going to work, to it is so spectacular. And the pictures are so beautiful. And uh, everything we said we were going to do that seemed impossible, we're doing it. Yeah, I know. So uh, there we are, the... Uh, the uh, Stefan's Quintet showed, yes, yes, you can see as much far back towards the beginning of time as we said. 
Uh, there's a black hole in one of them, and you can study the black hole uh, called an active galactic nucleus. Um, there's a galaxy uh, that's closer than the others in the picture, and we can see that it's all sort of pimply because you're seeing individual stars all over that one. I know. That just blew me away yeah, when I so, saw that. Yeah. That's wow. a category of stars that jumps out because they're red. Um, yeah. And so uh, the infrared telescope picks them up very well. Um, then we got the picture of the Carina Nebula, where stars are being born as we speak, and there are hundreds of them being born inside that cloud. Uh, and so you need a tour guide to be able to find all the cool things in that one. And so anyway, we are th so thrilled that it's not only working and doing the science, but it's pretty to look at. It is. You know, uh, to me, the beauty in the image is in the, uh, all of them are in the details, the ability to then zoom in. I mean, the, the deep field uh, image where the distant galaxies are just popping out all over the place is really startling. Now, what surprised me about that in, in these early galaxies is many of them have already evolved into um, a spiral-like or, or flat, flattened wheel-like surface as it is uh, rotating around their center. What were your thoughts about the deep field? Oh, well, number one, it's, it's what we said it would be. Uh, there are galaxies everywhere. Uh, <laughs> there are galaxies everywhere. When we said the, the Hubble picture, the Hubble deep field was great but not far enough, um, what we expected was the, the, the things that are the farthest away, the hardest to see, they're just going to be the tiniest little infrared specks. And now the Webb telescope can see them and say what's in them. What are the chemical constituents of those little specks? As well as how far back are they in time? Um, the tiny red specks, well, even the Webb telescope can't see their shapes very much. Um, but we can see that they're there and see what they're made of. We can count them. We see how many. So a current story is that our Milky Way galaxy with its beautiful spiral shape is probably made of maybe a thousand little bits that were pulled together over time. And we've still got two that are falling in, the Magellanic clouds. Yeah, right. Um, but um, it's really hard to work out the, the archaeology of the galaxy that we live in. Uh, so it's sometimes you can learn things by looking at other people's galaxies. Other people, not really, we don't really know that there's anybody out there. Uh, but why wouldn't there be? Yeah, right. Of course, of course. Are you on some teams right now studying certain aspects of what JWST is doing? Actually, I'm not. I did not propose to observe with a telescope. You know, what I'd love to do is imagine uh, new ways to build equipment. And so I'm on to uh, what's the next kind of equipment to build? Wow, I did not know that. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> I've got a couple of things in mind. Uh, started off about four years ago with an idea to make an orbiting starshade. So a starshade is conceived so you can see planets around other stars. And the problem that's to solve is that the stars are incredibly bright compared to the planets. So there's a huge amount of glare, so you can't do it. So what do you do? You either have to build a perfect telescope and put a coronagraph in it in space or uh, put up a star shade with a less perfect telescope and cast a shadow of the star onto the telescope without blocking the planets. So this is a good hard problem. Uh, and I thought, when I heard about it, well, first, can we do it with the Webb telescope? And the answer was, well, that's too hard right now. Uh, but what about a telescope on the ground? 
Uh, we have enormous telescopes coming on the ground. The biggest one is 39 meters across. It's wow. six times as big as the web. Wow. So uh, we've got to find a way to use it for that. So the upshot is uh, you could do this. Uh, if you could put a star shade 100 meters in diameter and put it 170,000 kilometers away from Earth so it can cast a shadow of the star onto the telescope. And then you have to line it up and keep it there for a while. So this is a good hard engineering problem, and it is not impossible. I'm working on that. In fact, I got uh, a nice uh, uh, support from headquarters through the NIAC, this NASA Institute right. of Advanced Concepts, right. to study what I'm calling the hybrid observatory of Earth-like exoplanets. So we currently have a, a, a design challenge open on GRABCAD, G-R-A-B-C-A-D dot com, um, you can sign up and send us a drawing of how you think you could solve our problem. That sounds fantastic, John. Yeah, those next new steps are really critical. And I find that the uh, uh, engineering community working with the scientific community are coming up with some really spectacular concepts. In fact, as you say, that star shade has a very specific shape. And, and uh, it had to be determined uh, by, I guess, supercomputers or, or, or other methods of computation to determine that shape. Were you involved in some of that activity then, too? Mm, that, uh, that initial work was a long time ago. We know what shape do we need to build. Ah. Uh, but it's just really hard to build it because it is so immense. 100 meters is bigger than my, the whole lot my house is on. <laughs> so that's hard, and it has to be pretty lightweight, which makes a, a good challenge. So that's pretty cool. Um, so that's what I like to do. Uh, I love inventing things. Well, that sounds fantastic. And as we can do these next generation telescopes, the ability to get to smaller planets is going to enable us to perhaps find something that's more like Earth than we've ever seen before. So I'm tremendously excited about that. And of course, what James Webb Space Telescope is going to be doing is helping us understand what that next generation telescopes will be because it's going to be taking spectra of planets. And in fact, one of those first images was of a spectrum of a Jupiter-sized planet. Uh, that really got me excited. I mean, uh, this was uh, just a, an exciting opportunity to then really tease out what the chemical composition is of an, of an atmosphere. Uh, the concept of being able to look at those exoplanets is critical and also compare them with our own planets here in our solar system. So one of the first images uh, in the solar system that have been released, of course, was of Jupiter and its moon, uh, actually several moons, but the one that, that was really exciting with a shadow cast on the planet was Europa. Yeah. Uh, how did you like that one? Wasn't that fantastic? Well, it was lovely. It was, you know, we took that picture to just to make sure the telescope could do that kind of picture because um, Jupiter's incredibly bright. How are we going to know that we can see faint things next to bright things? Uh, the bright star system is going to work and all that. So um, that was a really important thing to prove that we could even make those observations. And then it's so beautiful because you see Europa, you see Metis and other little satellites out there. Right. So um, Europa is especially important for people because as you especially know, we're sending a probe out there 
to pay more attention because it could have life in the ocean under the ice. So we're going to be watching that one, especially from here. And you could even see with the telescope, it has a shape. It's not just a little dot. And so we'll be watching right. the places where the water comes spitting out of the cracks between the ice blocks to see is there anything interesting in the molecules coming out. And then it'll be even better to fly through the, the plumes with a probe. But this is um, pretty cool. We'll be looking at Titan, too. I guess uh, Titan is... Uh, is an exciting thing to me because, you know, people are always asking me, are you sure the kind of life that we're looking for is the right kind to look for? Um, and so here on Earth, it's all uh, carbon based in uh, liquid water solvent. Well, on Titan, there are an awful lot of geological or titanological things that are similar to here on Earth. They've, uh, they've got rain and clouds and weather and rivers and lakes. And um, but they're made out of hydrocarbons, uh, ethane and methane especially. So um, if it's logically possible for life to exist in a circumstance like that, well, that's a pretty good place to look. So we'll be watching that one to do the chemistry from a distance uh, with our infrared uh, spectroscopy. And the, the surface may have different chemistry in different places. Uh, and uh, and uh, as we are really thrilled that the NASA is going to send a probe out there to land on this lovely satellite, including a helicopter. Yeah, in addition to that, all those other missions that we talked about, like the Europa Clipper, that'll be launched in a few years, make it to Europa and do these fad, fabulous studies up close and personal while JWST is looking at the context. And, and also for Dragonfly, which will uh, be launched at the end of this decade and, and make it to, uh, to Titan, uh, a moon of Saturn, that will also be observing and running around on Titan at the same time JWST will be observing it. So the overlap of these missions, it, to me, is just excitingly important. And, and, and it really enables Webb to be so versatile. But are you excited more about one set of science than any other on Webb? I'm excited about two things that I think we really could get surprises from. One is the very early universe, because we've never seen that stuff at all. Um, something could be going on that just doesn't fit the standard story. And uh, we would never know if we don't look. Yeah. So the Webb telescope is going to look, is looking. Uh, and the other place we could get a big surprise is about all those planets. Uh, it could be a, an interesting surprise or a disappointment either way. Uh, but we uh, have in the catalog uh, several dozen uh, planets to observe uh, through the transit technique to get their atmospheric characteristics. Well, the big ones are guaranteed to have atmospheres because that's what they are. The little ones, uh, little rocky bodies, uh, size of Earth uh, and the temperature of Earth, well, maybe they're bare rocks and maybe they have atmosphere. And that's a big number one question. And it tells us something about whether there could be life out there. Uh, we have a hope of seeing the signs of water on some little rocky planet. Uh, and on the other hand, it could be that, nah, nothing there. We have to build a different telescope to find out. Right. Uh, um, because Earth is actually a very special place. Uh, in the solar system, it's the only place which we like. Uh, you couldn't possibly live on Venus. Uh, Mars would, requires engineering support from home forever. Um, and so <laughs> what else are you going to do? Um, Earth is special. 
and yeah. we're kind of disappointed and surprised that uh, no other solar system like ours has turned up yet. Now, it's hard to find them anyway, but here we have in the solar system four little rocky planets uh, near the sun, uh, and one of them's the nice place for us. Um, one of them might have been in the past. Maybe the other one was too. Venus and, and Mars might have been habitable before. Um, but then we got a gap, and then we got four gaseous planets that are all chilly. So um, nothing like that's turned up in the rest of the planetary systems we found. So how come? So maybe Earth really is more special than we ever thought. So, John, I always like to ask my guests to tell me, you know, that person, place or event that happened to them that really propelled them forward to become the scientists they are today. And I call that event a gravity assist. So, John, what was your gravity assist? Well, um, I think back on my trajectory of bouncing off the various gravitational forces and um, as far back as I can remember, I wanted to be a scientist. Even in third grade, I knew of scientists. I knew about Darwin and Galileo, and I thought they did heroic things. Uh, people didn't always like what they said, but that just proved to me how important it was. So uh, my parents and my school systems gave me many opportunities to try and expand my interests. So I grew up in the countryside uh, uh, on an experimental farm, actually, of the university in New Jersey, Rutgers University. So um, I was a little bit exposed to science because my dad was a scientist, but he didn't understand the physics part. He was studying dairy cows. So that was pretty remarkable. At any rate, I had many opportunities from family, from, uh, from school to, to try hard things. So sometimes I tried them and I, and I succeeded, and that gave me a little bit of a boost to say, okay, uh, maybe uh, Galileo and Darwin could do great things. Maybe I could do something too. So um, somehow I got enough encouragement to think, well, <clears throat> maybe you can't do it, maybe you can, but why not try? Uh, so I put my heart into becoming a scientist all along, uh, starting quite young. Quite a lot of the time of a scientist is thinking about things that are not working. We have to be very tolerant of, um, gee, I haven't solved this problem yet. And gee, uh, somebody else might be ahead of me. And a lot of other things like that that seem intimidating, but it is part of the being in the process of organized curiosity. So in the end, you get to see uh, huge results. When you look at the house that you might live in, you say, where did this all come from? This uh, is based on scientific principles uh, implemented by engineers and society. So, but it's still nice to be able to say, you know, that paint on the wall, those elements came from stars. The wall itself came from inside stars. The chemical elements in my body came in from inside stars. And how did that all work? Well, let's find out. Thanks, John, for joining me and discussing how you got involved in this fabulous JWST. It was really quite an honor to have this opportunity to chat with you today. Well, thank you, Jim. I never could have imagined this whole trajectory, no matter how many gravity assists there are. So right. it was fun talking with you. Well, join me next time as we continue our journey to look under the hood at NASA and see how we do what we do. I'm Jim Green, and this is your Gravity Assist.